called John chapter 1, verse 1. The Word was God, the Logos. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus Christ is the eternal one. He is the Logos, the eternal one. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Father God, we pray that you would speak to us through this passage of Scripture. You would remind us of the centrality of our faith, that Jesus Christ is the eternal, begotten Son of the living God. He is God. And we ask, Father, that that becomes the very center stone of all that we are and believe in our Christian faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the truth that Jesus is the eternal begotten Son of the living God is under attack today. It's under attack. But I want to tell you that it's been under attack ever since Jesus was born. The spirit of the Antichrist, as John writes in 1 John, is at work in the world and has been at work since the birth of Christ. And behind every theology, behind every philosophy, behind every major religion of the world that determines that Christ is not the eternal God, is the spirit of Antichrist. It's going to be with us, it's always been with us, it'll be with us until he returns. There has always been opposition to this idea, and we'll find it again and again and again. It's just, if you like, almost written into the way things are within the world, that somewhere, even within the church, there are those who would say, Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, or would find it almost offensive if you were to suggest that he was. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I remember I, w- I went to um, a church. I was preaching in a church when I was training um, in Bristol. And I went to a, an Anglican church. And I preached on this. I preached with my heart, you know, passionately. And then afterwards, uh, the vicar caught me just after the service. And he said, Robert, thank you so much. Thank you for that. That was, um, yes, that, yes, that, yes, that was, uh, yes. And then, and then after that, I, I got caught by a lady on the way out, and, and she said, um, couldn't hear a word of it, she said, couldn't hear a word of it, is, couldn't hear a word of it, but she looked enthusiastic, I'll give you that, and just before I got out the door, this bloke caught hold of me, and he said, oi, vicar, he said, that sermon, I said, yes, he said, that sermon has destroyed my faith, that has, I said, thanks very much. He said, he said, you get on that platform, he said, you've told us that Jesus is the Son of God and he's born of a virgin. 
He said, I didn't come here to go to a nice carol service and sing nice carols to listen to that. And I've, I've developed that look now in ministry, which is kind of like the incredulous, excuse me, we've just been singing. I'll be about, I mean, literally nine carols. We've been singing about Jesus being the eternal son of God and the fact that he's born of a virgin. And yet somehow when somebody speaks it out, when somebody declares it as truth, there's offence. He is the stumbling block for many because they need, once you get hold of this, once you get hold of the idea that Jesus is the eternal one, he is God's only begotten son, then everything else fits into place, you see. And Satan will do everything he can to try and undermine this fundamental and important truth. And it seems to be something that's objective to people. One of the things I often hear is people say to me, you know, he never said that he was the son of God, did he? Eh? Eh? He never said he was a son of God. He said he was a son of man. Ah. He never said he was a son of God, did he? Ah. Ah. He said he's the son of God all the way through the scriptures. I mean, it's littered with it. Come with me, just so you've got an answer to these crazy suggestions. Come with me to John chapter 8 in your Bibles. John chapter 8. If you can get the page reference, you can shout it out. John 8, 19. Really, all the way through the Bible, Jesus declares himself, suggests himself, and accepts of himself the title Son of God. John 8, 19. They asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. If you knew me, you would know the father. If you see me, you see the father. When you talk to me, you talk to the father. That's why they wanted to pick up stones and try and kill him. They knew exactly what he was saying. John 14, verse 9. If you had known me, you have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. That's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you long enough? And you have not known me. He who has seen me has seen the father. That's an amazing statement. I mean, you could, you could just in your quiet time just meditate on that, on that one verse for an hour. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's an amazing statement. How can you therefore say, show us the Father? Now, the other thing that's really important in this counter-argument is that Jesus never denies that he is the Son of God when it's testified of him. And there's a lot of those. I'm just going to pick out three for time's sake. But Matthew 14 is one where the disciples as a whole come to a revelation as to his divinity. And this happens a lot. We might pick, not necessarily pick it up. But Matthew 14, 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, began to ask and cried out, Lord, save me. 
And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him. It's an amazing thing. Jews don't worship anyone but God. (laughs) Worshipped him. Because the wind and the waves recognized his voice. And said, you are the son of God. Amazing, isn't it? Peter says, in Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't say, whoa, Peter, you're getting a bit carried away. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I think this is one of my favorite ones. When Caiaphas, in a court of law, tears his robes and says to Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? In a court of law. And by the way, Jesus' answer here ends the court case. It all ceases after this. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says, what does he say? I am. I am. You cannot say that Jesus does not admit to declare in all kinds of ways his divinity. But the interesting thing is that later on in this passage, Paul John sorry, makes it really clear that the world does not recognize him. It doesn't receive him for who he is. The world would not recognize him. It would not receive him. It would not believe in him. The true light, John goes on to say, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world, and though the world, sorry, was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. They would not receive him. They would not accept him. They would not believe in him. You know, it's been a struggle. If you're ever in ministry, it's a struggle with aspects of the church on this subject. When I did my first theological degree, did you notice that? My first (laughs) theological degree. When I did my first theological degree, um, um, we had an open seminar given by this guy. He was a, he was a retired, retired vicar, and he was a, a, a powerful sort of theologian. He'd written lots and lots of books that I'd never written, that I'd never read, sorry. Um, and he was a lovely guy, a really sweet guy. But we totally disagreed on, on almost everything. <laughs> and, um, and he had this open seminar where the students were invited. And I got wind of the fact that a, a group of students were going to come to the seminar and they're going to try and block me from asking difficult questions and challenging him. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's quite, that's quite hurtful, isn't it? That's not very nice. Now, I think, Really? Am I that much of a threat? And, um, and I thought, so I went along, and, um, and there's like a group of students, and this lovely guy, and he, said, and he started off by saying, he said, 
He said, I've studied, no, he's not Prince Choi. He sounds a bit like Prince Choi. He's not Prince Choi. He said, I've studied, I've studied the scriptures. I've studied the scriptures in depth. And I've looked into detail at the great religions of this world. And I've come to this conclusion. I've come to the conclusion that if only we would get rid of this idea that Jesus is the Son of God, then all the great religions of this world, the Semitic religions of Islam, Christianity, and Judea and Judaism would come together and live in harmony and peace, you see. And I jumped in and I said, Ah, so what you're saying is that if authentic Christianity were to cease, everybody else would be happy. Is that basically, is basically what you're saying, isn't it? Um, and he said, yes, no, no, yes. Um, and then he said, um, it depends what you mean by cease. And then and he sort of looked at me and he said, Robert, you don't seem very happy with this idea. And I said, no, it's not. I just said, it's just not my favorite heresy. <laughs> my favorite heresy, I did, this didn't go down terribly well, by the way. My favorite heresy is where God is a space alien. <laughs> what I wanted to say was that God was a space alien and that he has controlled our thinking through some sort of amazing cosmic power. And therefore, we are still doing crazy things like eating fries, Turkish delight, and things like that. Um, but he, doesn't, he didn't actually, that didn't go down terribly well. But, but um, I didn't really get a, a chance to say anything after that, other than the fact that I was able to point out that this is actually the point. That the point is that because we hold Jesus to be the divine son of God, that's what is distinctive about Christianity. That is the truth that stands out like a block that people trumple over and stumble over and have difficulty with. And we need to keep this truth and hold on to it and declare it time and time again because it's fundamental. We might not think of it as being fundamental, but in fact it's fundamental to our Christian faith and to everything that we purport to be Christian, everything that we declare within the gospel. Jesus said, I and the Father am one. Now, in John chapter 10, verse 30, this is, what, this is what happens in his dialogue with the Jews. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I've given eternal life to them. And they will never perish. No one can do that. Only God can give eternal life. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's, by the way, why I believe in the assurance of the gospel. I don't believe you can lose your faith forever. No one can snatch them out of the palm of my hand, says Jesus. I and the Father am one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered him, I showed you many good works from the Father for which they, you are now stoning me. And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus makes it abundantly clear 
that if you are to follow him, you need and you must believe that he is the eternal one. He is one with the Father. So why is it important? Why is it so important we hold on to this truth under really quite an enormous amount of pressure today? I'd say because the whole doctrine of redemption, about you being set free from your sin, and I being set free from my sin, and us being cleansed and being made right before God, all of that rests on this truth of Jesus being the divine Son of God. So it goes on to say in this little passage, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The interesting thing is that people can do the most heroic things, can't they? Lay down their lives for one another. We saw that actually um, only just recently on London Bridge where people did the most heroic thing of wrestling somebody to the ground who was armed with knives. They can give up their lives and sacrifice their lives for one another. But Jesus' sacrifice is somewhat different. I listened to this story about an American family who had two children, um, both young children, a boy and a girl. And the little girl, which was two years older than the little boy, became quite unwell. um, And she developed leukemia. And they were having treatment and they needed blood for her. And they found that the best match for the blood was actually in the family, and it was her brother. He had the best match, and he's only two years older than her. And so mum and dad, in the evening, they got him aside, and they said to him, this is what's happening with your sister, okay? And um, your sister needs some blood. You've got the right blood. You're happy for her to have your blood. And, um, and it was just kind of like, you know, casual. And he really surprised them. And he said, I'll have to think about it. And they were a bit shocked at that, you know. And he went off into his room and um, was there all night, didn't come out, went to bed. And in the morning, they said to him, are you all right about today? And they said, he said, yeah, I've had a good think about it. And I've, I've decided to go ahead with it. Yes, I'll do it. And so they went to hospital and they took the blood and they came in, came into the room afterwards and they asked him, how are you feeling? And he said, oh, I feel a little bit rough, but I'm feeling, I'm okay, I'm okay. And he said, mum, I just got a question. I said, yeah, what is it? He said, when do I start to die? I love that story. Because that little boy thought he was giving up his life for his, for his sister. And Jesus has given up his life, but there's something different about his sacrifice. In that he's the only one whose blood gives us life, gives us true life. The only one that gives life and gives forgiveness of sins. There's no one else, and we see that clear in Revelation chapter 4. There was no one that could do it, that could open the seal, and then I saw the lamb upon the throne. There's only one, only one that could do that. And you know, you see that story 
portrayed powerfully in the healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, which again is one of my favourite ones. Where, of course, if you know the story well, um, Peter's house, we think it's Peter's house in Capernaum, is crowded out. And they lowered this man through the roof, through the roof with his mat right in the front of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And he gets up, he takes up his mat and he says, pick your mat up and go home. And they were so full of hate, the religious authorities, they couldn't even see the miracle, could they? They couldn't see the demonstration that he was God. All they could see was the fact that he said, your sins are forgiven you. And they said, you've blasphemed, for only God can forgive sins. Well, that was actually the point, wasn't it? They've missed, you know, isn't it interesting how sometimes religious folk can miss the entire point, the whole point of the entire exercise. They can just sit there and miss it. And, um, and the very fact that he was able to get up and take his mat and go home demonstrated that his sins were forgiven, demonstrated that Jesus alone, by his sacrifice, has the power to transform lives. And this is what John says in 1 John 5. I'm going to finish with this. And the testimony of, is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He does, who does not have the Son of God does not have life. We testify that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of the living God. Then we have life, eternal life. For whoever has the Son has life. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for this eternal truth that Jesus Christ is the eternal one. He pre-exists the birth of, of Mary. And he's gone back to heaven. He is the eternal son of God. He wasn't just coming into existence at the birth as, you know, some churches purport. He didn't come into his anointing and his Christhood, if you like, at the baptism as some churches purport. He was always and forever the son of the living God. And we declare that truth here on Advent Sunday and we will continue to declare that truth in this church to the glory of your name. Amen.